Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I'm Naga Spaulding, and today we are moving forward into Lamentations chapter 3, which is actually our longest chapter in the book, um, and you'll see why over the next couple of days, why I broke it up the way that I did, uh, but the we're actually it's a little bit of a pivot book, and so we're going to hear from a new voice today, and so, but yeah, so let's press on, let's jump into the word, so Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He drove me off, led away, darkness and no light. Just to me he comes back, turns his hand against me all day. He wasted my flesh and my skin. He shattered my bones. He built up against me, encompassed me with misery and suffering. He made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He walled me in. I could not go out, piled heavy bronze fetters upon me. Even though I cried out and shouted, he blocked my prayer. He walled in my way with hewn stone. He twisted my paths. A lurking bear he was to me, a lion in hiding. My ways he led astray and he ripped me apart. He made me desolate. He bent his bow and stood me up as a target for the arrow. He drove into my innards the shafts of his, the shafts of his quiver. I became a laughingstock to all my people, the theme of their taunts all day. He fed me full with bitterness, gave me wormwood's draught. He made my teeth crunch down on gravel, crushed me in the dust. My life abandoned peace. I forgot what was good. And I thought, my strength and my hope are lost before the Lord. Recall my affliction and my wandering, wormwood and poison. This is the word of the Lord. I think I might have dipped into verse 19 there. But, okay, so if y'all are a Denzel Washington fan, then you may remember, or even if you're just a fan of movies in general, you may remember the movie Man on Fire. And it was a very violent movie. I'm not recommending it. But the general plot of the book, or it's not a book. Maybe it was. I don't know. Anyways, the general plot of the movie is essentially this CIA ex-operative dude with special talents, Denzel, uh, is hired by this family to protect their blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughter from the Mexican cartel or from from somehow a Mexican-related theme. And it's I say I'm emphasizing the Mexican because blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl – and then people that don't look like her. So she stands out. I'm pretty sure it's Dakota Fanning. And the, and so he's like, oh, I don't really want to watch this girl. This is stupid. I mean, why am I watching this little privilege, whatever? But Denzel really grows to love this girl. And then, dun, 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 plot twist, she gets kidnapped. So now Denzel's like, mm, okay, so I'm going to have to murder all of you. And it's really a long, violent movie about a man who failed in his primary role, which was to protect this young girl. And then he goes to the greatest lengths he has to go to get her back and, and make her safe again. And I'm not going to spoil the movie for you if you want to go watch it. Uh, but if if that movie could be turned into a piece of poetry, it might be reaching, but ever so slightly squint your eyes and pretend you can see it, Lamentations 1 through 18. So let me explain to you what's going on here. Remember chapter one and chapter two, it's mostly the narrator and daughter Zion. Now our camera is switching. Like we're moving our camera away from daughter Zion. We're not going to hear from her again until very briefly one verse in chapter four, maybe. Okay. 
she's gone. The narrator is gone. There's some people who think the narrator and this guy in chapter three are the same guy. I don't think so. And you're going to hear why, because I think it's a very different perspective. But this guy in chapter three, it's our longest poem. Rather than one line per letter, the acrostic poem that we talked about, it's now three lines per letter, but the lines are shorter. So even though it's the longer, it's three lines per letter, it's not as long as you would expect. It's not like three times as long the words, but it is, it's an intensifying letter. And this guy, we're going to call him the strong man. He is referred to himself as the gaver or the giver. It's like the Hebrew word that can mean a man who is in charge of protecting women, children, and non-combatants. In other words, he's Denzel Washington. He is the, the guy paid to protect those who are not engaged in warfare, to protect the most vulnerable, women, children, and non-combatant males. So he's the guy that... When the camera shifts, so now we're not looking at Daughter Zion. Now we're looking at what's it like for the guy who should have stopped Babylon? And obviously he couldn't. I mean, no one can at that point, right? And again, we're going to learn that. But what's so interesting about this guy is the more we go on, the very next one that we're going to do tomorrow is he's the guy that gives us really the only words of hope in this book. And they're, and they're tugged, like snugged right there in the middle. So you got chapter one and two, very little hope, very bleak. You heard me last time. I wanted to rescue you from the tension, but I'm, I'm not going to. But this guy is actually going to show us that even in the midst of all of this great suffering, he gives us, they're not a lot of lines. I mean, I just read you a whole lot of ugly and there was no, no real positive in there. But he's going to give us a few lines of hope that really communicates a lot. I mean, it's like an oasis in a desert. And so we'll talk about that more tomorrow. Um, but I just want to talk about who this guy is because I want you to try and imagine. You're the person. You're Denzel Washington. You're the, you're the giver here. You're the, you're the guy. You're the person. You're the woman. You're the warrior. You're Wonder Woman. You're Batman. You're Black Panther. You're, like, you're the person who is supposed to not let this happen. And not only does it happen and you have to watch it, you get beat down in the process. That's the misery that we're going to hear about in these first 18 verses. And we're, it's really, it's, he paints like, uh, one, one commentator called it a collage of horrors. Like it's just one imagery after the next of what happens to him. But I, what I want to point out is we have a different speaker than daughter Zion. So two people who experience this unbelievable tragic loss, two people and there are very different themes in what they're saying, right? So Daughter Zion, it's very feminine. My babies are being killed. My, my children, I'm a bereaved woman. And there's this idea of sexual assault. That is going to be very different for this strong man. It's very masculine in this imagery, but there's going to be some recurring themes. And I think it's important for us to pick up on those recurring themes between their two accounts of what happens to them. Because I think those are reoccurring themes for anyone who goes through catastrophic loss. And if we know those themes, I think it helps us to be better friends, better supporters, better consolers. And so, so let's jump into it. So again, it's a first person account. And if you're reading it, if you started feeling claustrophobic, that makes sense because this guy is painting a picture of, okay, so I'm the guy, I'm the giver, right? And he's, he starts off talking about it. And then he starts talking about how his enemy drives him away in the darkness and there is no light. And then he begins to build a prison around him. Okay, so it's sort of like the, the Babylonians come in and here's this strong man and his job is to protect women, children and non-combatants and his enemy, which he doesn't name. 
Okay, so we're going to get to his enemy later, but he talks about his enemy is driving him back, pushing him back. And then he breaks his bones. And you're like, oh, that's pretty bad. And then he makes him dwell in darkness, right? Which don't have to explain that, right? Light is good and darkness is bad throughout the scriptures. He has to dwell in darkness. And then he begins to build an imprisonment around him. So heavy fetters are on him. And then he puts walls with hewn stone and it gets heavier. And then he's blocked in so much that he says even his prayers cannot escape this prison. Which is bonkers, right? Which obviously, again, it's hyperbolic, it's poetry, it's language meant to evoke something. But his point is, is he is so entrapped, so enclosed by this enemy that even his words can't escape this prison. And so if you were feeling that sense of claustrophobia, you're like, wow, the enemy is like creeping in. And he did, it's like, it's like you feel the, this like hand closing in around you, like the walls are coming. You remember Star Wars and they're in the trash compactor and the walls are coming in. That's how you're supposed to be feeling. And so then you think like, wow, that's pretty bad. Like to be thrown in prison, like pretty bad. Well, he keeps going. So we go from entrapment to imprisonment, then to assault. So after he's, he's hewn in and all this stuff, then he says, hey, my enemy was like a lurking bear and my enemy was like a lion in hiding. And there are times that lions in the scripture, awesome, dope, definitely representing the lion of Judah, definitely a great thing. But then there are other times where lions and bears are just natural known enemies, very dangerous animals, right? So, you know, getting thrown into a lion's den, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's not a good thing to happen, right? Um, when the, <laughs> the children are mocking one of the prophets and then a bear comes out and he mauls them because they made fun of his baldness. We'll talk about that another time. I realize I probably just created some tension, but that's all right. We're in lamentations, right? There are times that bears and lions are what they're meant to be ferocious animals. And so he's comparing his enemy to these ferocious animals that are destroying him. And then he talks about how his enemy shoots an arrow into him. His, his quiver goes into his innards. I mean, this is just like, again, it sounds so much like daughter Zion, doesn't it? And it should, again, we're having these, these pictures, these metaphorical words to describe just how intense the suffering is for him. And then he goes on, he's like, after all of this, okay, so I'm being pushed back. The walls are closing in around me. And then my enemy treats me like he, he like beats the snot. He like thrashes me like a bear and a lion would. And then he says, and then I was the laughing stock of all my peoples, right? He's like, I'm taunted and I'm full of bitterness and wormwood. And wormwood is just another way of talking about um, bitterness. And then at the end here, it goes on and he's like, then my enemy made me chew on gravel, which y'all, that's just graphic. Like, ugh. I mean, I love my teeth, y'all. I know it sounds weird because I really don't brush them that much. I just think brushing teeth is like, ugh, I hate brushing my teeth. I do it. I mean, I'm not, I don't want y'all to think like I don't brush my teeth, but I don't probably brush my teeth as much as most of you probably brush your teeth. But anyways, but I still love my teeth. So despite that contradictory thing that I just said, the thought of an enemy coming in and inflicting that kind of pain on you that you would chew on gravel. It's like when someone's like, eat dirt. Like eating dirt is not as painful as chewing on gravel. And again, like right now your ears are like, mm, and your stomach's like, mm, and you're like, can you move on from this? But again, it's what this book does. This book forces us to be uncomfortable as we continue to look at all that these people go through. And so our strong man, he's like, I had to chew on gravel, which was very painful. And then as if he's been waiting this whole time, 
If we didn't have chapters one and chapter two, like if I just said, hey, we're going to start reading in Lamentations three, and you're like, awesome. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. There's this strong man. Awesome. Love a strong man. Love it. Oh no. He's losing his fight. Oh my gosh. He's been backed up against the wall. Oh my gosh. They built a prison so strong. Even his prayers can't escape. Oh my gosh. His enemy has now thrashed him like a crazy lion. Also, he's being laughed at. He's being made to feel shame over this. And then as if that wasn't bad enough to add insult injuries, being chewing on gravel, you would be like, who is this jerk? Who is doing this to this strongman? Who is doing this to Denzel Washington? What in the world? And it's as if he makes you wait. And then in verse 18, he finally tells us who's doing all this to him. And of course, because we've been reading through chapter one and two, we know it's the Lord. Like we're not as shocked, but it is shocking. And what it does is it forces us, rather than focusing on what the Lord has done, in chapter 3, how it starts out is it's really just focusing on his misery. So by like waiting until verse 18 to tell us that it's the Lord doing this, what it's done for us is it's an acute study on this man's misery. Because we're just focused on him. Like, yes, the enemy is doing it to him, but really we're getting the perspective of what happened to him. What did he experience? How did it feel to him? What did he go through? And then in verse 18, we're like, oh, and by the way, it was Yahweh who did this. The Lord did this. And you're like, and so by waiting until the end, it adds shock and it allows his misery to be highlighted all the way through. And so it's, it's an incredible poem. I mean, it's just this this strong man, right? I mean, there's a reason why this guy is enlisted to care for women and children and non-combatants. He's this honorable strong man. He's Denzel Washington. He is Liam Neeson and Taken, which, eh, eh, you know, about them. I don't really care about that movie. But, but there's something about these men. There's something about the Gladiator movie when he finds that his wife and his children have died and he's like, he becomes a gladiator. There's, there's this trope, right, about there's a reason why certain people are chosen to protect us because they have honor and they have integrity and they have strength and they have a certain set of skills that allows them to do these things. And that guy is absolutely getting rocked for 18 verses. I mean, just getting rocked. And then all of a sudden we're like, who is doing this? And then we're like, oh yeah, Yahweh. You're always doing this. And so I wanted to point out these two recurring themes. I mentioned it earlier because I think it's so important that we see these themes throughout grief and the lament. And so the first one is this, is that in, if you remember Daughter Zion, what was her biggest frustration? Of course, it was painful for, for the citadels to be knocked down and the palaces to be knocked down and the princes to be knocked down. Of course, it was incredibly painful for her children to be suffering. But over and over again, it was no one will look at me and no one will listen to me. And then the narrator beautifully becomes her consoler. And so we're like, okay, awesome. But what's interesting is we see the same theme for the strong man. The prison is so built up, his prayers cannot escape it. Part of his misery is that there's no one to hear him. There is no one to hear him cry out in his prayers and his call for help. And so this idea that when you are in traumatic grief, that you would want someone to hear and see you seems to be a universal thing. You don't want to be alone. You want someone to look at you and go, you're right. It's really messed up. That sucks what happened to you. That sucks. And so for daughter Zion to do it, you know, you might be like, well, she's a woman. I mean, you know, she's just like, you know, how women are. They're so dramatic. Of course, she's like, someone look at me. First of all, that's crazy. Babylon took them out. But now you've got a strong man saying the same thing. It's not weakness 
to want to be seen and heard. It's human. And then the second thing, the second theme is, if you remember for her, she talks about her nakedness being exposed. She talks about her enemies are, are taunting and laughing at her and the passerbys, they hiss at her. That's shame language. And if you notice, he has shame language as well. He talks about being the laughing stock of those around him. So this guy that he, you know, you had one job to do, man, and he couldn't do it. And of course he couldn't do it. It's Babylon for crying out loud. And not only that, the hand of the Lord is behind it. We always know that. But he's, he knows that he's being laughed at. Like he knows that he's failed. He knows that he's not done the one thing that he's supposed to do. And so now he's the subject of ridicule. And that idea of shame, y'all, when you go through grief and loss, something happens to your brain. Okay. And I mean this. And part of what happens to the brain is you get new narratives that start popping in there and they're, they're whispers from the enemy that tell you how some of this is your fault. And they tell you how if people knew what happened to you, like they would blame you. And so let me, let me like, like for me, and this is really personal and this is really vulnerable. So I'm just, but I'm gonna put it out there because I think hopefully maybe some of y'all can relate to this. You know, when my sister died, one of the first thoughts I had was how can the sister of a pastor take her life? People are going to not think I'm a very good pastor because I couldn't even save my immediate family. Now, y'all, I've been to counseling. I've worked through it. I can't save my sister. I know that. I know that regardless of my job, whether I was a healthcare professional, whether I was a billionaire, whether I was like, I, I realize, I know now, right? I'm not confused on that thinking. But you know what happens in trauma and grief is that's where your brain goes. And you feel shame and you wonder, am I safe to even share this? It's like when your husband cheats on you and he abandons you. You know what happens to those women? Or to the men, if vice versa, man, are people thinking this was my fault? Is this my, am I, like, when I walk into church tomorrow, are people going to be whispering? Like, am I going to walk in and suddenly the conversation stops and that reminds me that, like, yeah, I was being talked about. Or when you're the victim of assault or someone, like, you, these thoughts of, like, shame permeate us through loss. Now, look, in, in the Lamentations one, it's difficult because some of this is their fault. Okay, so that I'm not, I get that that's a complicated, we, again, we've got a complicated order that we're working with here. But these universal experiences should still be considered and thought about. So I realize it's not a one-to-one ratio. Like I realize I didn't disobey God and that led to losing a sibling. Like I realize that. But when you go through loss, when you go through traumatic loss and grief and all of that, don't be surprised if you feel like no one can see you and hear you. And don't be surprised if there's a voice in your head moving you toward shame. And my encouragement to you is to move away from those things. There are people that can see and hear you. And there, there is a Lord that can see and hear you. I know I'm supposed to sit in the tension, but I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. But also shame. Like, you're, you're not supposed to sit in that. And sometimes you've got to bring those shameful thoughts and voices to the light so people can speak over them and say, that's crazy. Like, you lost your sister in a traumatic way. You can't blame yourself. Hey, that's crazy. Your husband chose to have an affair and abandoned you. You can't blame yourself for that. That's crazy that, that you, your boss fired you for a ridiculous reason. That's not your fault. You can't blame yourself for that. And so if you're ministering to someone who is going through severe loss, don't be surprised 
if they feel alone and don't be surprised if somehow they've taken on more blame than they should have. And let's be people who speak truth over our strong men and over our daughter Zions and those who are experiencing these things. All right, friends, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God is crazy about you. Peace.